0: going to be this morning in Isaiah chapter 24, uh, through chapter 27. And just a word of housekeeping. Uh, this is our last sermon in the Isaiah series before we take a pause here. And then next Sunday, Neil is going to preach. And then the following Sunday, I am going to begin a series in the book of Titus. So that'll be the first Sunday we're outside. And so, uh, a big book like Isaiah, uh, uh, you know, it's good to, to to work our way through it, but also it's helpful sometimes to pause and, and uh, 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 enter into other parts of Scripture. And then we'll come back to Isaiah later on, either later in the summer or as we enter into the fall. Uh, but, but we will have knocked out a, a sizable chunk of it here by the time we are done today. And I pray that we uh, are seeing the um, majestic glory of the God who reigns over us and who rules over his people, but not only just over his people, but in entirely and completely over this world in which we inhabit. And may we not only see that glory but in his reign, but may we see that glory in his redemptive power divinely worked in our lives, uh, uh, divinely orchestrated for our good. And we will see that yet again today in Isaiah 24 through 27. But pray with me, As we prepare to enter into God's word now. God, we open your word and we ask for your hand to be upon us. Lord, we have assembled the wood, but you must send the fire. We have your word open before us. May you give power to our understanding of it, to the preaching of it. And show us your divine goodness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that today, fortune cookies are quite lame. That's probably not how you expected the sermon to begin. Here's what I mean. I have noticed over the last few years... As I have eaten at a number of Chinese restaurants, the fortune cookies that I have received at the end of the meal are quite hallmarky, quite, you know, power of positive thinking. They say things like, you might be under a dark cloud now, but the bright sun is about to bounce through. Or they might say something like, uh, 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 the greatest thing that you can do is to believe in yourself when, when you do that, nothing can stop you. Or just... Power of positive thinking, stuff like that. I don't know about you, but I remember a day when I was younger, and it seemed, maybe I just ate at a particularly strange restaurant, but it seemed like the fortune cookies could be a lot grittier, be a lot more daring. I remember fortune cookies that were like, keep your head on your swivel, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, because you never know who will stab you in the back. Things like that, you know, like like real world fortune cookies, right? get out of the clouds and get down on the ground of how hard life can be. is it going to be a good month or a bad month? I think fortune cookies these days are kind of lame. I want to go back to the days when they're more daring. I think one reason why I think they're so lame today is that they give us this kind of empty platitudes your mind up in the clouds, but as we all know, life has a way of knocking us out of the clouds and slamming us down on the pavement. In Isaiah 24 to 27, what it does for us is where a fortune cookie says, hey, think positive thoughts, the future's looking bright. Isaiah 24, 27 gives us specifics about the future, and it tells us, it gives us this bedrock hope that nails us to the ground, standing athwart towards history, standing athwart towards the future that is before us, and tells us nothing can destroy you. That's the kind of future I need. It's probably the kind of future you need. See, what Isaiah 24 to 27 shows us is that history is marching towards an entirely God-glorifying end, And grasping this truth today will nourish our hearts with an indomitable glad trust in God. Let me repeat that. What I want us to leave today with is this truth. History is marching towards an entirely God-glorifying end. And grasping this truth today, that history is going this direction, will nourish our hearts with an indomitable glad trust in God. Let's see this in Isaiah 24 through 27. The way this passage breaks down, in fact, let me update you on where things stand in the whole book. So I told you we're going to pause at the end of this sermon and we're going to take a break. There's a natural pause here at the end of chapter 27. See, Isaiah is prophesying to the people of Israel and, to, and people of Judah. So chapters 1 through 12 of Isaiah are a word of redemptive hope, judgment over sin, but redemptive hope, for the people of Israel and Judah, but then chapters 13 to 27, then tell the people of Israel and Judah, the original audience, hey, and here is the redemptive power that God is going to display both in judgment as well as in salvation for the nations, for those outside of your people. And so that would include you and I. And so it's interesting, if you were to go back and look at it, chapters 13 to 20, which we looked at two weeks ago, were were spoken to nations that were like this near-term, direct word of caution that that, that was coming to them in literally decades down the road. And this was around 700 BC. But then chapters 21 to 24 uh, uh, broadened the scope a little bit into a more uh, vague, indefinite future. Well, now chapters 24 to 27 take us all the way to the end of time, and it says how God is going to bring the world to an end, and how we as Christians will hope, and we will not only hope, but we will rest, and we will delight, and we will find gladness in our God who gloriously reigns over the world. So that's what we see here. So, in chapter 24, verses 1 to 20, we, it, it, it is as if we're going to be, well, all through 24 through 27, but we're going to be kind of walking up a, a mountain, and it's a very narrow, steep ridge, and on one side is the judgment that God is going to bring on the world that does not know Him, but on the other side, at the same time, is the blessing and the, the, the redeeming power of God that is going to be upon His people who do know Him, and who do trust Him, who do worship Him. So we see first in 24, 1 through 20, we see this warning of God's judgment on the nations that do not know him and on the peoples that do not know him. So I'm not going to read all through chapter 24, uh, 1 through 20, but I want you to note that that, that the whole whole picture can be uh, described in verse 10. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. What chapter 24 describes is a people in a city where they are uh, seemingly secure in their, in, their, uh, in, in, their, uh, in their own well-being. And yet God is going to destroy this city. You might be familiar with the, uh, the, the saint of old, Augustine. And you might be familiar with his, his iconic, uh, historic, literary classic, uh, City of God. Augustine writes on this theme, a city of God and a city of man. That was not original to Augustine. It's actually something we see throughout the book of Isaiah. And so the city of man is going to be broken down by the judgment of God. You see verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered for the Lord has spoken this word. And I want you to hold on to something as we consider this here today, but also something that will help you to understand the totality of your Bible. From start to finish, there is a a, a theme, a thread that flows throughout your Bible, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And that is this divine work of God bringing salvation through judgment. And so it is where God rescues one people... And yet in his righteous justice, he acts in judgment upon those who have not returned to him, those who have not repented of their sin and looked upon him. And yet strangely, mysteriously, these are held together. Salvation and judgment mingled together cannot be separated. Of course, the place where you see that most vividly in all of Scripture, this this weaving together of salvation and judgment is nowhere else but the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he endured the judgment of God for our sins. And yet in that judgment, we who look upon him in faith, we who repent of our sins and believe in him and trust him with our lives, we don't experience judgment, but through the cross we experience salvation. So God is judging the city of man. And there's themes in chapter 24 that stretch all the way back to Genesis. In chapter 5... uh, or, or excuse me in verse uh, verse four through seven excuse me there there are ties like the earth is defiled in verse five verse four the world languishes and withers for they have transgressed the laws as verse five says verse six a curse devours the earth verse six at the end of it Uh, and few men are left. The wine mourns, the vine languishes. And then if you were to look all the way over at the end of verse 18, God describing the judgment that he will bring upon the world says, for the windows of heaven are opened and the foundations of the earth tremble. There's words here, there's themes here that are actually seen all the way back to God bringing about the flood in the day of Noah in Genesis. Genesis. So it's this weaving of this theme of salvation and judgment. So chapter 24, verses 1 through 20, holds up one side of the mountain is this judgment upon the wicked city of God, or the wicked city of man, excuse me. But then, in verse 21 through the end of 27, is the other side of the mountain in us understanding what is the outcome, what are the ramifications of all that will unfold on that day of God's judgment on the city of man. And so if you were to go look, if you were to make reference to this, you would see, let me, let me read these to you here. You would see, I want you to make note of these. Look in chapter 24, verse 21, I'm going to read you six verses where you will see, so this, this day of God's judgment is chapter 24, verses 1 to 20, and then you'll see uh, six times through the end of chapter 27, references to on that day, on that day, on that day, and it speaks, it gives a more clear picture towards the end of the earth, and towards the redemptive work that God is doing. So in chapter 24, verse 21, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, in the kings of earth, on the earth. In chapter 25, verse 9, skip over to that. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, we have waited for Him, that He might save us. The Lord will save His people on that day. In chapter 26, verse 1, in that day, this song will be sung of the land of Judah. And we'll see this song in a moment. In chapter 27, verse 1, In that day, the Lord with His hard and great strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Chapter 27, verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. And chapter 27, verses 12 and 13. Listen to this. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And then verse 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is the day to which the world is, mar- uh, is, is, watch- is, is marching. And so, let me ask you, coming back to this original idea of fortune cookies and what your future holds... Very basic question. Are you prepared for that day? Not do you identify yourself as a Christian, not do you consider Christianity to be most intellectually uh, uh, satisfying, philosophically understandable, rational in light of the world as you see it. All of these things, I believe, are true. But are you prepared? Let me say at the most basic level are you prepared for the day of the Lord? Will the direction to which the world is going end in your everlasting delight in God? Or end in damnation before God? This might be a hard truth for you to hear. Have you acknowledged the fact that you are a sinner in need of a Savior? Have you acknowledged the fact that a perfectly just and righteous God rules over us? And that He does not cut corners and shrug off our rebellion against Him. For in doing so, He would not be perfectly just and righteous. If you are in the boat where you feel as if you might be on that side of the mountain where it will not be sunshine and glory of God, but where it will be judgment of God upon you and upon your rebellion, your sin against Him, may I encourage you to hear this warning today. In fact, may I encourage you to know that there is salvation that comes through judgment. Judgment must be paid for all of our sins. Will you endure it on that day? Or will you place your faith, will you align yourself in submission under Jesus Christ who bore it in His day at the cross? I would love to speak with you more about this, whether you're with us in person or even if you're tuning in for whatever reason. And you have found yourself here, and you found yourself saying, yeah, i got to ask these questions about my future. I would love to speak with you either after the service or send me an email. Do not put, do not put off wrestling with these questions of what your future holds. So that is the warning that the nations hear in chapter 24, verses 1 through 20. But now let's move on, secondly, to the wonder of what the church will know on that day. There's a warning for the nations. Secondly, now a wonder of what the church will know. If you enter into chapter 25, you see God promising uh, 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 an an ending a a fitting conclusion to those who have rebelled against Him. But then you enter into verse 6 of chapter 25, and I just want you to hear as we consider this this promise of what our future holds as Christians. Just listen as I read from the rest of chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. Just listen to this. You've heard the warning. Now hear the, the, the welcome that awaits us as Christians. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Listen to verse 9, brothers and sisters. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I can't wait for that day. May I encourage you as you hear this, dear church? May I encourage you that there are beautiful diamonds of God's goodness revealed to us in His Word. If only we will see them. It's easy to make our way through parts of Isaiah, even parts like this, and read something like chapter 24 and say, oh, more judgment. Oh, I can't take it. I have a hard time with it. Yet we turn the page and we see not judgment, but joy. And that may be where you are today. That may be where you are, where you feel as if this cloud just follows you around. Maybe as I talked about fortune cookies earlier, and I gave the reference to the one where it's, that dark cloud might be following you, but don't wait. The sun is soon to break out, and you just feel like your life has been one never-ending dark cloud. And you say, okay, the Hallmark card, feel-good stuff, it doesn't work anymore there's diamonds in here. There's steadfast hope. I want you to consider something else. Sometimes when you're talking about Christianity, when you're talking about what it means to become a follower of Christ, there can be two areas, two ways in which we can veer off the rails. The first of which, as I just addressed those who perhaps are not Christians, and I urge them to not ignore the fact that they have sinned against God and that that must be addressed before it is too late. And the danger is that sometimes that you ignore that and you say, well, maybe I'll deal with it later, or I don't know, I'm generally overall a good purpose, a good person. I am polite to people. I say please and thank you. I recycle. I do all the right things. And so sometimes there's some people on one end of the spectrum, you have to say, no, you are not good enough. No one is. The only person in this whole world who has ever lived who has been good enough before God not to endure his wrath was the one who stepped in our place that he might endure our wrath, Jesus Christ. So on one side, there's those who, yeah, that, eh, that seems severe, but I think I'll escape it. But then on the other side, there are those who consider themselves maybe through no problem of their own, but through a rough life background, through a difficult upbringing, through, through challenging life circumstances that have continually beat them down. And they feel as if God does not love me. I see these promises of God's word for so many other people. I see the hope that they have. I see the smiles that they carry. I see the blessings that can seem to continually be poured out upon their lives. And I don't know what to make of it myself because my, my life just feels like a continual drag. So one side, there's the folks who I'm trying to convince that they need to look upon their sin and repent. On the other side, there's the folks who I'm trying to say that though that dark cloud rests over you, you are loved by God. And so the message for you is not one of empty hope as if tomorrow will be better. Join with, who is it, Annie, singing tomorrow, tomorrow, it'll be better. I don't know the song, but you know what I mean. Tomorrow may not be better, but 10,000 tomorrows, a hundred trillion tomorrows, for all of eternity, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will enjoy the richest foods that God has to offer. We will enjoy the finest wines and drinks. We will enjoy the laughter and the pleasure of the presence of our God. How do you hang on to that today? How do you hang on to that today? These might be verses that you even seek to memorize. In a year where we have seen so much death, Where we have heard so much agony. Maybe it would be good for us to memorize verse 8. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. What are the tears that he will wipe away from your face? Maybe you've suffered unspeakable losses in your life that you still don't understand. Loved ones taken far too soon. Maybe maybe you've suffered terrible, debilitating illness, watched a loved one do so, and you feel as if how could this be? And anytime you meditate on it too long, all it ends in is tears and sorrow. Maybe your life just feels directionless. Maybe, maybe, maybe work feels aimless. Maybe the life you have is not the life you dreamed, but is more the life that would have been a nightmare. I don't think it's a mistake that this passage says he will wipe away the tears. It doesn't say he will wipe away the tears from those who have them. I think it's understood that we'll all show up with them. We may, may not bear those tears with one another in here, but God sees, God knows, God understands. And he doesn't just see those tears and says, Man, I'm sorry. I did everything I could. He sees those tears. And He has already begun the work of carrying you to that place where He will wipe away those tears. All you have to look back upon is this promise from 2,700 years ago. That He gave to His people to hang on to then. That we still hang on to today. And that is fueled by stories of His faithfulness throughout Scripture and throughout history all the way to this point. The reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. The embarrassments. The social awkwardness. The feelings of not measuring up to those around you. The uncomfortability. Odds are that some even in this room, or you've you you you've lived a life where you have been uncomfortable in your own skin. Maybe you have wrestled with sexual attractions that were uncommon or that were foreign or that, that, that you did not know what to make of them and felt shameful. Maybe you have wrestled with even... Tragedies and atrocities that you have endured in life that have left significant scarring upon you that you will carry with you until the day that you enter into the presence of Christ. Whatever it is that is a reproach that you feel, whether it be mental illness, physical illness, the reproach of embarrassment before those whom you try to please. The reproach of shame that you feel follows around you as if you're carrying, wearing a big scarlet letter. And though you try to project one thing, you feel as if everyone sees right through you. And you just want to crawl up in a hole and hide. He will remove that reproach. And it is as certain, look at this, the reproach he will take away from all the earth. In fact, go back and look at verse 6. Look at all the, look at the, the definitive nature of this. Look at all the times it describes all. Verse 6, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples. Verse 7, all peoples. Verse 7, all nations. Verse 8, all faces. Verse 8, all the earth. You might feel as if the blessings of God are exclude you in this life because of hardships that go unexplained that you experience. But the promise of God's healing mercies for you in the presence of Christ will not escape anyone. They will be upon all who are His. And the certainty of that is the same certainty, the same power by which God Himself spoke to this world into existence. Look at that at the end of verse 8. For the Lord has spoken. I can't wait for verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. I can't wait to say that. I can't wait to say that. But what do we do while we wait? If chapter 24 shows us the warning for the world, chapter 25 shows us the the wonder that the church will know chapter 26 shows us the way in which we wait on that wonder look at chapter 26 verses 1 through 4 in that day this song will be sung in the land of judah we have a strong city he sets up salvation as bulwarks as walls and bulwarks Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. How do I wait? Verse 3 helps us. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. We have a problem. We have a hard time keeping our minds stayed upon God. There is so much noise in our day and age. The average cable TV package has about 900 news channels. That doesn't include all the apps you have on your smartphone. That doesn't include the barrage of text messages, of voicemails, of emails that you can receive just, just bringing all sorts of news before you. We, have a, we live in a world that seeks to bring bad news. So how do we do verse 3? Well, I think we take a page, actually, from the original audience that was receiving this. The original audience in Judah and Israel, they didn't have their smartphones. They didn't have cable TV packages. And yet what we see in them is that they still needed this reminder, they still needed this caution to hang on and wait for the Lord while your world seems chaotic. I think the way in which we wait is to anticipate The way in which we wait is to both look backwards at the faithfulness of God revealed in His work throughout Scripture and in Christ. And then the way in which we wait is to also anticipate and look forward to all that Scripture promises like we see here and all that we know we will experience in that day. And so as you wait while marriage is a challenge... You wait knowing that if he is going to remove that shame, if he, is going to, if he is going to remove that reproach, you wait knowing that the trial, the struggle of the hardship you know in marriage right now will make the singing of the song in Christ all the more joyful in that day. You know that as you wait on the the the, 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 the troublesome uh, family member that, that you can't seem to get through to, that you can't seem to understand, that you reach out to and all you feel that you get is unanswered questions. You know that you wait knowing that the burdens that you carry relationally, whether it be people who are nearest to your heart or those who just have great sway over you in life, that you wait in a manner in which the fears and the hardships and the toils and the agonies that you knew in that relationship You will sing all the more richly of one who knows that reproach has been lifted in that day. And so we don't wait with some kind of vague, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but I know it's going to work out. We wait with bedrock promises as if the city of God lies before us and every day we are driving down the road and the miles on the sign to get there are getting less and less and less and less. And as you say, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You know for a matter of fact that the hope that you have as a Christian is not only that we will one day get there, but as you ask, are we there yet? You know that the hope we have is grounded in that he has come to us and that his spirit dwells in us and will help us. Wait. So we've had a warning for the world, a wonder for the church, a way in which we wait for that day, and now the final wrath that He will establish, but not on us, on the one who seeks. Our destruction look at chapter 27 in that day the lord will with his hard and great and strong sword will punish leviathan the fleeing serpent leviathan the twisting serpent and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea leviathan is a weird animal in the old testament I used to think Leviathan is like was described as like some kind of sea monster in some places, and other places it was described as like this great beast. Like I used to think it was some kind of mix between like the Loch Ness monster and a dragon, and uh, some people have hypothesized it was like some kind of like mutant hippopotamus or something like that. I don't know. It's this it's this mythical beast that is described in the Old Testament for the challenges that we face, for that great monster that lies before us, that maybe as we try to wait on the Lord, it's like trying to wait patiently while your house is on fire. Easier said than done. Hey, wait still while the world around you burns. And Leviathan is that thing that would seek to burn around us. But God tells us, you don't have to fear that Leviathan. You don't have to fear that beast. I think that beast actually symbolizes Satan and all of his devices that would seek our destruction and our harm. That's why he's described as a serpent in chapter 27, verse 1. Look at this. And, and, and this, this, this wrath that he will exhibit upon Leviathan with his hard, great, strong sword will punish this fleeing serpent, this twisting serpent. He will slay the dragon that is in that sea. And then what do you expect to hear here? You expect to see... This is like we've reached the mountaintop. The destruction of this enemy who would seek our harm. And the mountaintop for us in chapter 27 verse 2. In that day a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I the Lord am its keeper. We are the vines. He is the vineyard keeper. Every moment I water it. Lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. He stands at the guard ready to protect the vineyard of His people. He says, if there were thorns and briars, I would take them out. I would march them against against them. I would burn them up together. The Lord stands ready to destroy that which would seek to destroy us and to guard and to protect you and me. Do we hear this? Will we wait? Will we trust? Let me give you one more promise as we conclude. The very end of chapter 27. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Assyria and Egypt here is just describing, as the people of Israel and Judah knew it, the furthest reaches of the world as they knew it. It's illustrative. It's illustrative of the four corners of the earth today. The promise here that God has given to the people of Israel and Judah and that grabs hold of us is that he is in the the very act right now of gathering people's from all nations, that they may come before him and worship and enjoy that feast of his presence, where their tears will be wiped away, where they will eat the sweetest foods, drink the most beautiful drinks, and they will enjoy him and rejoice in him for all of eternity. The question that we ask is, okay, how do I wait? The thing that Isaiah 27, the end of it, shows us is that as we wait, we know God is at work. For Jesus Christ, who commissioned his disciples and commissioned those who would follow after him to make disciples of all nations, he has sent his church out, His people out, and by his mercy, his grace has come to us that we have heard and we have received and we have responded in faith to this message that has come for, to us from the Middle East some 2,000, 2,700 years ago. And so what we see of chapters 27, verses 12 and 13 is that the hand of God is faithful in accomplishing his purposes and bringing a people to himself to enjoy him forever. And so as we try to wait, we see in Scripture, we see in the unfolding of the history of the world, we see the hope that God's hand cannot be thwarted. And if we were to turn all the way to Revelation chapter 20 and 21 and 22, you will see a promise that dwelling in the presence of God will be His people will be his people where there will be no need for sun or moon or light. There will be no need to to put up the gates and protect the city from invaders, for they will dwell secure in the presence of God for all of eternity. There will be no need for sun or moon or stars because God himself will be their light and they will live in him. This is the story of our Bibles. This is the story of the book of Isaiah. This is the story of your life and of mine. God, help us to wait. God, help us to worship. And God, help us to warn those around us who still must hear. Let us seek to go to those who are in the city of man and invite them to come, become citizens of the city of God. Let's pray together. God, we give praise to your name. We give praise to Christ Jesus, our Lord, and our rock. Our refuge, our strength, our very present help in time of trouble. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be as a people who cling to the steadfast hope of your word as revealed here. Let us not cling to empty platitudes, but let us cling to solid, rock-hard truths. And let us know that the truths of your word are solid, But the embrace of your mercy is sweet. So Lord, if there be any in our midst who, whether they have become a follower of yours in the past, but they have sinned, they need to repent of, and they need to return to you, help them to do so. Or if there be any in, in this room or tuning in with us who need to surrender their life to you, they may not understand what all it means, but help them, Lord, to take that first step of seeking that out. Help them to hear the warning of your judgment and help them to walk towards the welcome of your grace and of your joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.